You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. Except we finished the Bible, so now we're talking about stories that seem like they should be in the Bible, but they're not. I'm Lauren O'Neill. And I'm Nico Bakulich. Let's get biblical. You got it, baby. But before we do, we have to remind you, as always, this is not a Christian Bible study program. And it's not appropriate for children. I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. I'm the ex-Christian, and I'm now an atheist. And I think we should crack right on into it, if you don't mind. Maybe as if we were cracking open a cold can of fine White Claw brand enhanced soda. <laughs> I think it's called hard seltzer. <laughs> I consider I consider all enhanced beverages of a of a category, whether that's your alcoholic coffee, whether that's your alcoholic CB- wine, <laughs> <laughs> your CBD infused matcha green tea Mm, Mm -hmm. double greens that's right your peanut butter flavored whiskey i just tried some peanut butter flavored whiskey and it was surprisingly good anyway what we're talking about today is the dead sea scrolls the dad sea scrolls the mom sea scrolls uh nico yeah what did you know about the dead sea scrolls before we started researching this this episode well now it's been a couple years by now but we did perform our inimitable routine upon another podcast at at one point um, when we joined some friends on the I Don't Even Own a Television podcast. Mm -hmm. We reviewed pretty favorably, as I remember it, the Dan Brown classic. The Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. Yeah, we gave it five stars, best book ever written. That's right. That featured the the Dad Sea Scrolls pretty heavily in it. Uh, You know what? I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember that at all. Well, so there you go. That was like my main exposure, you know, just a, a general pop cultural sense that they're out there and baby, they got some secrets hidden. They got some secrets. Mm-hmm. So, uh... What about you? You can't, you're not getting off that easy. I definitely have like a pretty, I have like a pretty large cultural awareness of mm-hmm. the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which is kind of surprising given that I didn't know anything that was in them at all. So, uh, could you tell the people where the first Dead Sea Scrolls were found? I'll, I'll do and, my best. And when and how. Mm-hmm. So, and everything about the Dead Sea Scrolls for the rest of the episode? I cannot. <laughs> I am so sorry. But their discovery was a major 20th century event. I think we can all agree about that. Mm-hmm. But in 1947, apparently, as the story goes, there were a couple of Bedouin goat herders. Yes. 
named Juma and Mohammed Adib. And they were looking for a lost goat, apparently. That's what you do when you're a goat herder. And one of them found a cave. And to test the depth of the cave, apparently, he, either Juma or Mohammed, threw a stone in and heard the shattering of a clay vessel. Whoa. Now that'll pique any the goat interest herders. of any young goat herd, yeah. Right. So um, I guess he cracked on in there and found several unopened jars, jars with their tops still upon them. Mm. Cracked them open and retrieved some ancient-looking scrolls, whereupon he took them to Bethlehem, to a dealer that they know. Um, like an antiquities dealer. Yeah, but the dealer apparently turned them away, said they were worthless. Because this dealer was apparently warned that these scrolls were likely stolen from a monastery, so he didn't want to touch them. Hot business. Hot stuff. Okay. But that wasn't even true. So our intrepid goat herd heroes tried to find somebody else. And the scuttlebutt around the market was they should talk to this guy, Khalil Eskander Shaheen, a.k.a. Okay. Kondo. Kondo? A cobbler and part-time antiques dealer. And proponent of uh, uh, getting rid of half your stuff. That's right. If it doesn't spark joy. That's right. In this case, he must have felt like these scrolls did spark his joy because mm. he purchased them for seven Jordanian pounds. <laughs> about $314 in American $2018, apparently. Okay, that's not that much. But from there, the story gets massively more complicated. Okay. But I just love that the humble origins of this ground-shaking archaeological discovery. Two young goat herds. I mean, it's the same deal with like the Gnostic texts and everything. It's always just shepherds find them in a cave. Mm -hmm. it, it's like a really dry, hot environment and it like preserves these leather and papyrus scrolls better than most environments. Yeah, and, so these, uh, this cave in particular is a place called Qumran. Yes. Which is named after the nearby Wadi, the, the dried riverbed. And it's in the West Bank mm -hmm. near the northern tip of the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. hence Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the like lowest, right near. One of the lowest points on Earth, if not the lowest. Yes. I've been there and it's weird. It's weird. How weird is it? You go in the water and it's so salty, you know, that, that like you float, mm -hmm. whatever. So, but like I wasn't trying to float, but I like stepped in and my flip flop was like pushed off my foot and rocketed to the top <laughs> of the water. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. That low in the Earth. Can you hear the chittering of the mole men below you? Um, Is it audible? You know, it's not audible like to your ears, right? But like to your like your aura. Mm -hmm. I think your aura picks it up. Definitely interfering with the edges of your aura, the chittering of the mole men and women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> okay, so uh, they find these scrolls. It's the forties. Um, the area is uh, in a bit of a transitional. <laughs> phase sure um like my haircut and weird stuff is happening so over the next 10 years um various you know archaeologists scholars and you know antiquities dealers um like what was his name condo uh they go and explore the caves around the area and they find way 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 more scrolls it's a classic scroll rush it's, it is. It's a scroll rush and then they also find the remains of a settlement mm -hmm. right near the caves like literally within a stone's throw of one of the caves um, but because of political reasons and religious political reasons, weird politicking was happening. And so like only a few people had access to these documents and most of them weren't academics. Um, like the guy 
in charge of things was a Syrian Orthodox archbishop. Mm -hmm. So, like, no translation was getting done. Nobody really knew how to study this stuff. Um, And this went on for decades until 1991 when they finally got some qualified guys on the team and and expanded the team from, like, seven people to 60. And then uh, they also made a photographic archive available to anyone. I think this might be why it looms large in my pop cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. because, like, actually, it it didn't really hit the world until 1991. And I was alive in 1991. So what's wild is it seems like it was, you know, like, kept secret, right? And in some ways it was like these the, this academic council, which was kept very small, like you said, very intentionally, did like limit access to it in some cases. But it's also like a kind of a case of incompetence in a certain yeah, kind because, of way. Because like, the people who had it didn't know how to study it. Yeah. And it took them forever to like publish these translations. And they were supposedly, you know, supposed to be publishing like Bits continuously, yeah. Of, they had a whole timeline to publish every part. And I mean, now that we have all of them, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot. There's yeah. so much text. Like I have, I bought the complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English, which isn't even complete. Right. Um, and it's 700 pages long. Yeah, because there are, there are a bunch of longer scrolls that are like near complete, but with, you know, chunks missing or something yeah. like that. Then there's a bunch of tiny little fragments that like you can't even classify. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those. Yeah. yeah. And then there's also copies of all the regular books of the Bible, right. except for Esther. Yeah. Uh, that's the only book that's not... It's the only one they didn't find. Yeah. Weird. Is it because it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God? Hmm. Or is it uh, merely that it crumbled in the in the jar? Yeah. Who also, also found in these wonderful caves copies of books that did not eventually make the cut to be part of the canonical Jewish Bible, yes, including the Book of Enoch. Enoch and um, uh, Jubilees, which Jubilees, we've covered on the show. Uh, uh, a little a little known hit called The Book of Lamech, mm. about the story of Noah told from the perspective of his father, Lamech. There's also a bunch of apocryphal psalms mm-hmm. um, and other you know apocryphal books that, that we had other copies of, but they're also represented here. Um and in addition to that, there are these scrolls that are like a record of life at this settlement. Mm-hmm. There's um, like community rules and like kind of theological statements, um, a history of their origins that's very allegorically written. Um, the thing is, it's not super interesting to read through these mm-hmm. on a podcast. Uh, like we usually do with a given Bible book, because for the most part, there's no narrative or anything. It's just like lists of rules. And also it's insanely long. So, yeah. Um, and the most interesting ones are fragmentary. So it's like 10 lines that are contiguous, you know, and then there'll be like little bits and pieces yeah. here and there. So instead of like going through any of the scrolls individually, we're just going to basically tell you like what academia has learned from the scrolls, like big picture um, and we'll refer to the scrolls just for the juicy bits. Um, and my main source here, as I mentioned, is the Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English, uh, translated by and with an introduction by Geza Vermez. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. A British-Hungarian Bible scholar. Try to get him on the show, but he's dead. So 
The people who lived at Qumran, we are like 99.9% sure, were members of a Jewish sect called the Essenes. Now, the New Testament is always talking about the Pharisees mm -hmm. and the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. But there was another prominent sect at the time called the Essenes. They're never mentioned in the actual canonical Bible. But we've known about their existence for a long time because they're mentioned by various ancient sources, such as Pliny the Elder. What? Ever heard of him? No. <laughs> I've heard of the beer. Philo of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And inventor of the dough, dun, 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 Josephus. And Josephus is the famous uh, Jewish Roman historian mm -hmm. who, perhaps due to his guilt over uh, joining the Roman side in the war against the Jews, uh, decided to write these two big books of Jewish history called The Antiquities of the Jews and The Wars of the Jews. He says, like, he, he's like, Judaism can be divided into three. Mm -hmm. Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. And he says he's tried them all. He was born into the Pharisee class. But he did, like, an internship with an Essene ascetic mm -hmm. out in the desert when he was a teenager. According to him, for three years. <laughs> we call that his wild period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in past episodes of this show, we've broken it down more or less like this. The Pharisees were middle class. Uh, they believed in following not just the Torah, but also the Mishnah, mm -hmm. which is the oral Torah. And uh, in particular, they believed in the resurrection of the dead on Judgment Day. Uh, that was a big point of contention for them. The Sadducees were upper class. They believed in following only the written Torah. And they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection or afterlife. And Jesus is always fighting with, like, the Pharisees, mm -hmm. but actually I think that's just because he he wasn't upper class and just, so he just didn't come in contact with the Sadducees. I see. He's more—he's closer philosophically to the Pharisees. I guess so, yeah. Um, Josephus adds that the Sadducees, the elite ones, believe in free will. The Pharisees believe in a mix of free will and fate, and Essenes only believe in fate. It's all predestination. We have no free will. Yeah. And then he keeps going for like pages and pages about the Essenes. He does not care about the other two, I guess, because he has all this. Lived experience. Yeah. He has all this knowledge from his internship that he wants to He's share. a primary source. Um, and he describes a very strict, pious, ascetic group where. How strict, Lauren? <laughs> they, they don't get married. They live in a commune with shared wealth. Right. They wear white garments and they don't like change them or they they like wash them, but they wear the same garment over and over until it's completely worn out. They're obsessed with cleanliness. They're obsessed with cleanliness. To um, the point that in some readings of it, not allowed to do a number two on the Sabbath. Whoa. Yeah. He says they have really strict Sabbath rules. Um, and also they kick people out of the community and like shun them for breaking the rules and, uh, so on and so forth. I said, I said, do a number two, like this is a, a child's podcast for babies. <laughs> I meant take a steaming shit. <laughs> Thank you. My, my favorite line from Josephus is the habit and management of their bodies is such as children use who are in fear of their master. Hmm. So just like very neurotic and obsessed. Imagine if you're like a historian from any time in the past 2,000 years mm -hmm. and you read all this stuff in Josephus. And then 
suddenly, in the 20th century, you find a bunch of scrolls in a cave by pure chance, and they confirm everything. Mm-hmm. So weird. That would be bizarre, right? It would be bizarre. Yeah. It's insane how, how closely they line up. It's like you just you go back and forth between them and you're like, damn, he really did know what he was talking about. He got everything right. So how did this how did this sect come to be? How did they come to live in this weird little settlement? I don't fucking know. Okay. Well, I'm gonna try and tell you, okay? According to their own scrolls. This is how they tell their story. It's a real episode for the scroll hounds out there. <laughs> Scrolling. During the time of wrath. Uh-huh. 390 years after the Babylonian exile. Okay. That's just what they say. They say it was 390 years later. A group of pious Jews and righteous Jews noticed that everyone around them was getting pretty sinful. It happens. But then... You keep you take your foot off the gas for a second. Right? I know. And then people are going to start to get sinful. People start worshiping idols. Mm-hmm. The teacher of righteousness then appeared. A super cool god dude who would lead them in the ways of the lord but some folks in this this righteous group they didn't like the teacher of righteousness and they have various names they're called various insulting things Mm -hmm. but my favorite is seekers after smooth things that's right they're hunting the smooth tall places and smooth things that's what they like so the smooth guys start following this bad non-god dude Mm -hmm. uh, known as the scoffer the spouter of lies or the wicked priest yeah and unfortunately for our (laughs) like fundamentalist heroes the smooth wicked priest prevailed Mm -hmm. and he became the ruler of israel and so the teacher of righteousness and his dudes had to fuck off to qumran to go create a wacko puritanical cult yeah so sad Apologies to all our Essene listeners. <laughs> um, my favorite part of this story is that according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the wicked priest kept harassing them even after they left, mm-hmm. including coming out to Qumran on Yom Kippur to fuck with them <laughs> and try to like goad them into breaking their, you know, like their Sabbath laws sure. or their like yeah, holy yeah. day laws. But basically, the gist is this one group of people in Jerusalem decided that regular establishment Judaism was wicked and corrupt. Yeah. So they went somewhere else to go establish what they considered the only true form of Judaism. And this was somewhere in between the two testaments. So, you know, sometime around 200 BC. Right. Remember how we said earlier that like the early council on translating the Dead Sea Scrolls was pretty incompetent? Mm -hmm. Not only does it include literally duct taping fragments together to no, s- see if they literally fit yes well it's not du- literally duct tape but it is literally adhesive tape oh my god which scotch that, taping yeah which then ruined a bunch of the fragments because it like holy shit melted the, the adhesive melted on and now they can never take it off and it's like oh my god too smudged to read and stuff not only that but even though they translated them really slowly and like took forever to publish them they also had people on the council that jumped to insane conclusions about especially this portion of it. I mean, honestly, the scroll leaves it open open to interpretation. Yeah. It's like the wicked priest, the teacher of righteousness, and everything is like, oh, it was in the age of wrath. You know, it's just like 
custom built so that you can just project whatever you want onto it. Right. So, I mean, the very interesting, you know, historical thing to take from it is that the Essenes were basically like a restorationist group, you know, that they felt like Judaism had fallen into disrepair, spiritual disrepair. Absolutely. And they needed to rebuild it, which is exactly the same movement that like Jesus grew out of. I mean, that's the Protestant Reformation. That's everything. You yeah, know? it happens to religions all the time, yeah. right? But they see, saw that, you know, and especially the description of how the teacher of righteousness arose at a time of crisis, you know, and they were like, oh, they're talking about Jesus. Mm. This is actually a Christian book. I mean, if you were just assembled because you knew the archbishop of the Syrian Orthodox <laughs> Church, right? like, yeah, that's where your mind would go. <laughs> well, I mean, mostly these are academics from France and England. That's true. On the original council. But they are but they are working in they're like in Jerusalem or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So in combination with the description of this immaculate teacher, what the fuck was his name? The teacher of righteousness. Teacher of righteousness. Um there was also another bit of text that stuck out to researchers at the mm -hmm. time, uh, called the Son of God text. Most of which is obscured, but there's one column that's available. Oh yeah, everything was written in columns. Just fun fact about scrolls i guess when you live that scroll life you you think in columns and they never write like you don't write on the front and then turn it over and write on the back mm. you only write on the front and then you like turn it over and write a different text a so totally different across thing. all the backs yeah yeah and in some cases some of the texts have multiple things superimposed on each other yeah like kind of written crossways yeah yeah it's pretty sweet it's kind of cool. Anyway, so the Son of God text. This was the one that like people were like, oh, my God, they were actually Christians. Uh -huh. um, just I'll just give you a couple lines off the top of the dome piece. Uh, he will be called the Son of God. They will call him the Son of the Most High. But like the meteors that you saw in your vision, so will be their kingdom. They will reign only a few years over the land while people tramples people and nation tramples nation. Until the people of God arise, then all will have rest from warfare. Their kingdom will be an internal kingdom and all their paths will be righteous. So it's very similar to the prophecy in Isaiah, which is like a big one for mm -hmm. for Christians and early Christians, especially. And for the Essenes in particular, mm -hmm. Isaiah, they quoted it a lot. But this one's talking about the son of God. What, what the heck? I'm going, what the heck over what here? What the heck? But anyway, so that led to multiple decades of like infighting and confusion in the public about like <laughs> wait confusion among the people conf widespread confusion panic in the streets dan brown writes a hit yeah. bestseller about it i mean it is so tempting mm -hmm. when you know you have documents from around the time of jesus that's right everything in the area yeah. where jesus was and if you see something that's labeled son of god like of course like it of course you're gonna jump to that conclusion totally um i also read that like these various theories that the the wicked priest and the teacher of righteousness were like Jesus and Paul sure. or Peter and Paul. Right. Um, but it turns out like when you look at just like radiocarbon dating, it's all from before Jesus. Right. It's all very straw graspy. I agree. But man, it's, you know, I completely understand it. Mm -hmm. like, why wouldn't you do that? You know? Yeah. I mean, the straws are right there. The straws are right there. How are you not going to grasp them? Um, so let's, let's take a detour. Okay. And let's learn about life in Qumran. I would love to. Okay. Take me on a, take me on a tour of historic Qumran Wadi. So the Essenes had two branches. Okay. One was just normal people. 
who lived throughout Israel, like, or throughout Judea, uh-huh. in various towns. And they they did follow certain strict rules, but they, like, lived more or less normal lives. And then one was this kind of... Ascetic. Ascetic. Section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That were kind of the leaders of the, the sect. Um, and they lived in Qumran. Probably about 150 to 200 people at a time. Hmm. Talk about an outsized influence on history. I know, right? right? Just because they put their shit in a cave and put tops on their jars. You know? <laughs> That's the key. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever talks about how you have to put tops on your jars. <laughs> um, they were all men in Qumran. Mm-hmm. Um, this branch of the sect was not allowed to marry. And they were not allowed to have, like, any impure thoughts at all. I think they're not allowed to have wet dreams, actually. I think that's in there. Hmm. Um, the men in the, like, normal branch could get married, but they could only have sex for procreative purposes. So they could not have sex while their wife was pregnant or, like, after she hit menopause or whatever. So in Qumran, they were all about shunning all pleasure. Sure. Um, they had a very strict hierarchy. So at the top is a man known as the guardian or master. Um, and then there's the priests and then the elders and then so on down the line. So you get, you know, like whatever, novitiates or whatever they would be called. Um, it seems like they spent a lot of time doing council meetings and community meetings. Yeah. I mean, any organization, you're just going to meetings are just going to eat up your time. Yeah. Right? And and they had very strict rules for these meetings. Um, everyone has to like. Enter the room in a certain order according to their rank and sit down and stand up in a certain order. Um, Josephus says and the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that only one person is allowed to talk at a time during meetings. Okay. Um, Seems sensible. They have to follow this protocol where they like stand up and say, like, I have something to say to the council. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they're not allowed to interrupt somebody of like a higher rank, you know, stuff like that. Um, They took kosher laws to an extreme. So uh, not only did all the food and the cooking vessels and the cooking utensils have to be ritually pure. Also, they would immerse themselves in water before they ate. Hmm. So they would like get baptized three times a day. Wow. Um, Did you know know their obsession with kosher stuff extended to the materials that they wrote on? On, on these scrolls? I did not, but it makes perfect sense. That the animals with the highest biblical value, I'm talking about your lambs, talking about your goats. Your red heifers. Mm-hmm. Your flawless calves. That's where the highest quality Bible books were written, hmm. according to them. But then your lower tier stuff, your like gazelles and antelopes and stuff, that's kind of like borderline kosher. Hmm. I guess. Your giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Your dugongs and whatnot. Um, that's where you write down your community guidelines, your mm. your in-house prophecies, got it, got it, got it. the history of your order and whatever. But your your main Torah books have got to be written on goat or better. <laughs> uh, also, at the at mealtime, a priest has to be present at every single dinner table to bless the food. Mm. And you cannot eat a food unless a priest has blessed it. I guess because everything was so regimented... Everyone's like eating at the same time anyway, so mm-hmm. it's all kind of scheduled in. Uh, they also took Sabbath laws to an extreme. Uh, from the moment the sun went down on Friday, you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to even talk about work. Hmm. Uh, you weren't allowed to go more than... Phones off, kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's family time. You weren't allowed to go more than 500 yards from your house. You can't sweep dust. Okay. 
Uh, you can't help your animal out of a pit. So if your animal falls in, that's gone. Isn't that in the Bible? Isn't the animal in a pit? I vaguely remember maybe, something from maybe. that. Maybe, yeah. Could be in Leviticus or whatever. Um, there is a very magnanimous rule that you're allowed to save a human mm-hmm. from water or fire as long as you don't use a rope or ladder. Okay. Interesting. Because I guess that would be work. And if you break the Sabbath rules, you are imprisoned for seven years. Holy shit. Until the next Jubilee year. <laughs> or something. They're not allowed to own slaves or weapons. Oh, interesting. Essenes, which caused a bit of controversy because people discovered at those same Qumran ruins uh, a section that looks like it was probably a fortress at one point in history. And so then they were like, these couldn't have been Essenes because they swore never to wield weapons. But of course... History is complicated and long. <laughs> Many people have probably settled there. And the Essenes were also around for a long time. Their rules could have changed. Yeah. Also, they're not sure if it was a fortress or not. That's like conjecture. Oh, my, yes. Now, of course, the most striking feature, to me at least, about Qumran is that it was a commune. Mm-hmm. And all property was communally owned. Um, it's interesting because it's exactly the same as what is described in the Book of Acts. Um, after Jesus dies, the disciples live in a commune. And it says, you know, pretty much verbatim uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Peter struck Ananias and Sapphira dead because they didn't uh, contribute their property. That is all like exactly the same as the Essenes. If a man wanted to join this this community in Qumran, there was a two to three year probation period. So he would come and live with the commune had to follow all the rules and prove he was, you know, a man of God or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then after one year, he would have a, a ceremony where he would give up his property, but it would be set aside. Put an escrow, sure. Yeah. Um, and then after another year, if he, you know, he still had to prove whatever. And then at the end of that year, if he succeeded, then his property would be absorbed into the commune and he could start fully participating in the society. Now, we don't have a specific list of rules, but we do have a list of punishments for if you break certain rules. Mm. And they're very harsh. <laughs> I mean, I'd imagine so. Uh, if you break one word of the law of Moses on any point, whatever, you're expelled from the sect and no one is allowed to speak with you or give you food or they will also be expelled. See now, right right off the top of the of the bat. There. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem, right? The tip of the bat. (laughs) The the crack of the bat, the whoosh of the ball. The flick of the wrist. (laughs) Because interpreting what the law of Moses is, is like a full-time occupation. Well, that's the thing, though. That was the occupation of these people. Right. Um, The hierarchy included groups of, like, you'd be split into, like, 50s and then 10s and whatever. And every group had had to have one person studying the Torah at all times. Mm. That was the function of this group. The people in the normal cities, right. they were like interacting with the world, but they needed somebody to just be studying the Torah all the time and figuring that out. And figuring out. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure there was plenty of debate, right? <laughs> and like differences of opinion. But that is the whole point of them mm. is to is to figure out what the word of the law of Moses is. Um, you could also be expelled for uh, slandering the congregation, mm-hmm. questioning the authority of the community, 
or, quote, uttering the most venerable name. You slip up and say, God damn it, you're kicked out of your only home and the life you've always known. Do you get your property back? Probably Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And you also have to, you're not allowed to take any food or water with you. And so you just have to damn. Like, try and make it to the next wadi or whatever. Yeah. Uh, lesser punishments would be probation for a year, for six months, three months, etc. Um, that would mean that you would be excluded from a lot of daily life. You wouldn't have access to um, like ritually pure things, which was like most of the things. Right. One of the things that would get you probation for a year is lying about how much property you own, just hmm. like Ananias and Sapphira. I see. Um, a list of other things. Not submitting your tax returns. Exactly. To the American people, perhaps. <laughs> That's not a political podcast. And I'm not a rapper. <laughs> a list of other things that got various levels of punishment. Lying deliberately. Taking revenge. Going naked before your companion without having been obliged to do so. Because hmm. sometimes you gotta. Sometimes, uh, yeah, apparently sometimes it's, well, it's, it's communal. It's communal living and they have a minimum number of garments. Yeah, so that's yeah, <laughs> true. Somebody's going to dangle occasionally. Um, failing to care for a companion. Falling asleep during a council meeting. Mm. Guffawing foolishly. Uh-oh. Or my personal favorite, being so poorly dressed that when drawing your hand from beneath your garment, your nakedness is seen. Yep. Just cover it up, fellas. Uh, here's a cool rule. They also said that although the incest laws in the Torah were written for men, they also apply to women. So women can't marry their uncles, just like men aren't supposed to marry their aunts. And apparently that was not observed in mainstream Judaism at the time. Wow. I wonder if that lost them any clout in society. It's like, oh, you guys are those crazy people that think. Yeah, that think like uncles shouldn't marry nieces. Yeah. <laughs> These are real Puritans over yeah, here. I know, right? So, you know, okay, good for them on the incest front. Should we take a break? Yes, we're going to take a break. You're going to hear some music, and we'll be back in about a minute with more Dad C. Scroll. Dad C. Scroll? Dad like scroll. Bye bye. Not even a dad. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where blah, 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 blah. My name is Nico. I'm 
I'm Lauren. And we're chatting about the scroll. <laughs> wow. Thank you for disrespecting our podcast on our podcast. I'm not disrespecting the podcast. What I'm doing is respecting our listeners' time and attention. They've so. been listening for, insert correct number of minutes here. And they're ready for blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, they know what the show is about, hopefully. As previously mentioned, the Essenes, like all religious fundamentalists, were a huge sack of fun. Thought they were following the only true form mm-hmm. of the religion. Um, and so, you know, we have we have a running joke about nasty fig boys on this show, because in the book of Jeremiah, there's a big metaphor about... Wait, we, what? <laughs> about the, the remnant of Israel that would be restored and reunited and blessed after the Babylonian exile. And and Jeremiah says those are the those are the good figs, mm-hmm. and then and then the the evil nasty fig boys will be thrown away. So the Essenes thought they were the tasty fig boys, and that everyone else was the nasty fig boys. Or in their terms, they believed uh, everyone had one of two spirits, and, okay. and everybody every Essene had to be versed in in like discerning the two spirits. And those are just light and darkness. So you could be a, a son of light or a son of darkness. Right. They had a big light and darkness thing. Yes, that was that was a huge motif for them um, in terms of like metaphors and also like in terms of the way they saw the world. Like everything was very black and white. Um, and they bought into all the messianic imagery that comes with that, you know, that comes from being obsessed with Jeremiah and Isaiah. They believed that they were in the end of days uh, judgment Day was near. A Messiah would come and put them in power and get rid of the Romans and the fake Jews, and they would all be punished just like the Babylonians. They have an awesome book, uh, which is mostly preserved in the in the Qumran scrolls, called the Book of Mysteries. The Book of Mysteries, alternatively called the Secret of the Way Things Are. Okay, which just sounds like a literary novel. Yeah, um, or the Sapiential Work. Um, and it's a book about their thinking about the secrets, you know, like this, the idea of the mystical secret. And it includes a very strange... Esch- yeah, I heard about it on Oprah. That's right. The secret. It has a very strange eschatology and talks about the end of the world, this like sort of messianic thing in an unusual way. There's no big explosion. There's no war. There's no torrential rains or anything. It's just a gradual replacement of the darkness by the light, like described as the sun dawning and the shadow of the night going away to be replaced by the light of this new uh, holy existence and blah, blah, blah. However, there were also other documents about a a big war Mm -hmm. uh, that the Archangel Michael would defeat Satan. Yeah, you probably can't get away from that stuff. Uh, (laughs) It It was very popular and with good reason. But, it's great. But the their it's great tape. Their it's simply great tape. Their core mystery is a little more, you know, sure, a little more obscure than all that. They also believed uh, in two messiahs. Mm-hmm. They believed there was going to be like a political king messiah and then like a religious priest messiah, and also obviously the priest messiah would be superior, <laughs> and the king would have to just do whatever he said. Yeah, it's also kind of hard to tell exactly what they believed, right? Because, I mean, like, we don't necessarily have, like, a ranking of how important these books and everything were. Yeah. We just have them all sort of in a pile. That's true. And we don't have them at all. 
<laughs> we have like third hand translations of it. Yeah, them. we have translations. Although you can look at photos of the entire set online if you yeah, want. Yeah, you can. Um but obviously it's hard to read. Yeah. Um and it's in well, the readers can't see this, but Nico, you can see the cover of, of my book. Yes. You can see that Hebrew looked different back then. Yeah. It doesn't have the the kind of square character that it has. Now it it's more uh, pointy and triangular. Mm. So, like, I can't read it. Right. Even though I can read Hebrew. And portions of it were in Aramaic and Greek as well. Yes. Plus... And look, my Greek is fantastic. <laughs> And my Hebrew is also nearly perfect, <laughs> but my Aramaic, it's, it's, a, it's a, at best a B plus. It's frankly embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's interesting is that Geza Vermez notes that this messianic type of thinking, this like, we're near the end of the world mm-hmm. uh, and soon judgment day will come, that kind of thinking arises due to the dissatisfaction of late biblical thinkers with a divine justice that allowed the wicked to flourish on earth and the just to suffer. Hmm. That, that's very interesting because one thing I was thinking about during the break when we retreated to our separate corners and drank our nettle tea mm-hmm. as ritually provided. That's what it says in the scrolls. Mm-hmm. Um, was the commune that they set up, you know, very similarly matches the one described in Acts. And I was thinking about what that there must have been not only spiritual pressures, you know, that lead to a like a surge in messianic thought uh, and, and sort of rest- restorationist thought, but also like economic pressures that would lead people to like embrace the idea of like, yeah, fuck this. Mm-hmm. I'm getting out of here to live communally because like this whatever you got going on in the city here is broken. I got to say, you know, when we were reading through all the old prophets in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, we got so sick of it. And we got so sick of reading, oh, like, yes, God will use Babylon to punish Israel, but then he'll punish Babylon in turn and blah, blah, blah. As soon as Trump was elected, I actually understood what they meant. Because all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I wanted there to be a hell. Mm-hmm. Because you just see people doing blatantly evil things and there's no consequences and your mind can't deal with it so you have to start you're like well they have to pay for something there must be something that will bring them to justice Mm -hmm. and then you know well clearly you can see nothing in the world is bringing them to justice so you got to come up with an afterlife or a judgment day you know Mm. um and like i mean (laughs) I would also like to go live in a commune. I wouldn't like to live in a commune. But, you know, like, I understand the impulse in a way that I didn't previously. Right. Anyway, back to Qumran. The temple, it's corrupt. They didn't go there for holy days and sacrifices. You know, like, everyone else had to come there, you know, for, like, various holy days to make sacrifices at the temple. Um, So they did sacrifices themselves. And they considered those the only true sacrifices. Although they did consider Jerusalem a holy city, they just thought the people running the temple were profaning it. They actually followed a different liturgical calendar. So they followed a solar calendar. Oh, really? Whereas the regular Jewish calendar was lunar. And this could actually be how 
the wicked priest was able to come fuck with them on Yom Kippur. I see. He didn't have any. Didn't have anything to do that day. It wasn't it was, Yom Kippur for him. It was just a regular whatever day. Yeah. So he could travel 500 yards. Sure. He could. He could do whatever he wanted. And they were like save people with ropes and ladders yeah, if he wanted to. Sure. They were. They were just like watching people float away in a flood and they were like no getting quicksanded left <laughs> yeah. and right i wish Please, we could help you i reach my arm but vines of course are the ropes that god made for us and i can't use that to can't save you can't use those um and the holiest day of the year for them was the feast of the renewal of the covenant mm. which is not obviously uh didn't exist in other forms of judaism and this was where everyone got together in qumran including the normal people out in the villages they would all come into qumran and do a big a renewal blowout. of the vowels. Yeah, it's homecoming. Renewal of the vowels. Yes, re- renewal of the vowels. Renewal of the consonants. Every type of letter, mm-hmm. they would just talk about them for hours. No, renewal of the vows and, you know, confess their sins, recommit to the lifestyle, whatever. <laughs> sure. um, as Josephus mentioned, they believed in predestination. They were fated to be the chosen ones. Uh, very obsessed with the idea that they were unworthy, but God in his grace loved them anyway. They viewed their bodies as prisons for immortal souls. Hmm. Um, And Josephus says they guard against lascivious behavior of women and are persuaded that none of them preserve their fidelity to one man. So basically they're Puritans. Yeah, I was going to say. And who were those... Scottish Protestants who were obsessed with predestination and Calvinists. Yeah, there we go. That's what that reminds me of. Yeah, that's where Presbyterianism comes from. Yeah, that's how I was raised. (laughs) A proud Presbo. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they're like in a very real like they share many theological similarities with Puritans. Hmm. Yeah, and they were into the idea of a new covenant. Yes, which is something a little fella named Jesus, son of Joseph, was also into. In I'm fact, just I'm just saying I'm just asking questions like, huh? And what? I mean, OK, so the thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is, yeah, even though they were written before Jesus well. um, and don't mention Jesus and have never heard of Jesus, they do tell us a lot about the world Jesus lived in mm-hmm. and like the philosophies that were being discussed and the the way people were living and just like the atmosphere of political upheaval. In Judea, when they were colonized by Rome, mm-hmm. and there was there were all these revolts and, and wars and stuff. So, just like Jesus, they were obsessed with the idea of an imminent final judgment day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believed that the signs of judgment day were healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the blind, whatever. Um, they refused to take oaths. Which, you know, Jesus said, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. They lived in a commune, mm-hmm. just like the book of Acts. John the Baptist probably wasn't an Essene because obviously they're very, like, insular. Yeah. They're very, like, esoteric. He was out there street preaching. Right. Laying his hands upon the people and whatnot. But he is described as an ascetic figure. He wears a camel hair tunic and eats locusts and wild honey. Which lines up very well with the Essene ascetic Banis, who Josephus did his internship with, <laughs> uh, who used no other clothing than grew upon trees and had no other food than what grew of its own accord. Hmm. And 
they were ritually immersing themselves in water right. multiple times per day. Yeah, they were obsessed with baptism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe John the Baptist was like an ex-Essene or something. Maybe they just crossed paths. Yeah, maybe, maybe they influenced each other. Yeah. They were on the same scene. You know, John the Baptist opened for the Essenes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so even if you don't jump to some conclusion like, oh, the but I wanna. Paul is the wicked priest right, or right, whatever, right, right. it's like... They actually confirm a lot of the stuff in the New Testament as being like an accurate historical depiction mm-hmm. of the time. Um, even though, you know, the, the New Testament, like the Gospels were written, you know, several years after Jesus died. From a period of like 50 AD to 150 AD. Yeah. Approximately. And, and these are from like 200, 300 years before that. I think the latest dated stuff in the Qumran cave was from like 70. Yeah, that's about. true. So there there are like some late dated stuff, but most of it comes from before then. Yes, yeah, so there was a lot of political upheaval. There was a lot of uh, religious extremism, frankly. There were a lot of people waiting for the Messiah yeah. and the end of the world. You know, Which has to speak to the state of their world. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were in, in a state of probably spiritual and economic poverty, you know, like they needed something new. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has to make this right, right, you know? Something, we can tell things are fucked up. Yeah. Something big needs to happen yeah. in order to set things right. And so then, you know, if you look at it from a historical perspective, then, yeah, Jesus makes total sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of people out here waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the judgment day, you right. know? So, yeah, that's a completely plausible historical figure. Um, Something interesting is that when you look at the scripture in the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you look at like the copies of different books, mm-hmm. there will be differences between the same copies or between two copies of the same document. Mm. Um, and this has been called insufficiently controlled copying by some scholars. What an odd name. Yeah, because, well, you know, we have this idea that the role of the scribe is to copy everything down exactly. Right. And if some if there's a difference, that means there was an error. I see. And that's based on our idea of monks in the Middle Ages copying things or something like that? Like, where does that idea come from? Well, probably that. But also, I think it comes from our modern notion of, like... Perfect copies are easy to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also the notion that there is, like, a text mm-hmm. and not... The fact that there can be multiple versions of the same text. Uh, Giza Vermez calls this scribal creative freedom. And he says basically this shows oh, us. Of course, SCF. <laughs> you know, your standard SCF. He says basically like this, this shows us that they had a different attitude right. toward that. Um, and that people like uniformity was not the only criterion. Mm-hmm. And that creativity could be something they felt free to insert some creativity into it. Right. So this is like a hangover from the end of the oral tradition and like the beginning of the codified written tradition or something like that? I mean, probably yes, but also I think like it probably extends way, way, way past that. I think that just the way we look at texts is probably pretty new Hmm. in human history. Sure. When you think about Shakespeare. Right. You know, um... And I do often. I mean, <laughs> that beard, that dome. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking ladies. about. Ladies. You know, he would like plagiarize stuff, right? 
what we would consider plagiarism. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't thought of as plagiarism at all. That was just like a creative source that you. That was used. how you wrote plays. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's probably not just like a hangover from the oral tradition. Mm. Like it probably kept I mean, it's, going. Yeah. Fair enough. Until like the other day. Yeah. He points out also that it's it's ironic because the reason the Dead Sea Scrolls are so seductive mm-hmm. is that we want there to be this one text. And these are like the oldest ones we have. Mm-hmm. Before this, the oldest like scroll that we had was the Book of Isaiah, and it was from the year like 980. And now all of a sudden we have something from a thousand years earlier. So like this is the authentic version like this is from Mm -hmm. before jesus this is the real judaism you know but actually what it tells us is that there is no authenticity there is no real judaism you know and i can see that from a biblical scholarship perspective Mm -hmm. but from a layman perspective Mm -hmm. the stories are uh, nearly identical yeah i guess so i mean i guess probably They're, they're functionally identical I think that was especially true of the canonical books, mm-hmm. um, but less true of, you know, they have like... They have like the wisdom of Sirach and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? Some of this... Which like, ended up ended up in and the... And Tobit is in there. That ended up in the Deuterocanon for... For Catholics. For Catholics and for Eastern Orthodox people and stuff like that. I guess there are significant differences there, for example. But like in the Torah... Yeah. Well, and the... Yeah, and the Tanakh. Like and the, the Tanakh, yeah. yeah. But they also have their own their own unique books, right? Mm -hmm. They have these unique, like, apocryphal psalms um, and, like, hymns, and those vary a lot. I mean, they're less... Obviously, they have less of a tradition. They're, you know, probably 100 years old, 50 years old, maybe, you know, maybe even less than that when they were written. But they weren't expected to be exactly the same. So they didn't have this idea that there is only one version of Scripture, I guess. I see. Yeah. And that is that is powerful. But despite that fact, I think the seduction that you talked about, that this is a window into this Judaism from 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be crazy if it was exactly the same? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty damn close. (laughs) For the most part, it's like pretty close for us. It's not like wildly different. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's true. The way they live their lives is pretty unique, you know, but in terms of the actual texts of of the scripts from my from my understanding i i haven't gone word by word through I the haven't either through the texts you and, know yeah i mean i'm going by third hand i'm going by right. what this book told me so <laughs> i i'm taking it for granted that this like preeminent biblical scholar like knows about the differences <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know <laughs> the point is it is amazing it is amazing window into history it damn is. it. In multiple ways, it Admit is. it, that it's a goddamn amazing window into goddamn it history. It is. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, Essene, the Essenes were around before Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were around after Jesus um, because, you know, Josephus was hanging out with them. That's right. He was he was born, like, right after Jesus died. Um, but obviously they didn't uh, make it to the present. And presumably something happened to the Qumran branch. The Qumran brand. The Qumran brand. It suffered a major setback at some point. They had to pivot hard. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at, at some point, they felt compelled to hide all their sacred scrolls in a cave. It's, it seems odd, right? Because so, it's not a library, right? It, it's not like... 
that's the place where you keep your holiest stuff so that you can go and reference it. That's everything is just like stuck in the basement. You know, presumably because there's some kind of emergency, right? And uh, they never made it back to get those scrolls because they were still there when we found them in the 20th century. We. I personally, a Bedouin goat herd. <laughs> well, sorry, I forgot that you were a better Bedouin goat herd. Thrust my hand into the cave uh-huh. and pulled out the top of the vase. No, um, so they never came back for them. So there, presumably there was, that settlement was destroyed in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, we know the Romans were persecuting everyone in Judea. Right. Uh, and the Essenes in particular, Josephus specifically mentions that they're, they're like very stoic under torture and, you know. And I would expect that like them being anti-commerce and anti-war and, and stuff probably wouldn't rub the Roman imperial administration the right way. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to pay taxes. Right. They're they're not going to levy, you know, they're they not going like, to pay the... taxes to like the temple, right. you know. Um, but so something that's interesting is, yeah, so the Essenes died out. The Sadducees died out. And then the Pharisees, who were kind of in the middle, they they valued oral tradition and written tradition. They saw things as a mix of fate and free will. Mm-hmm. And according to the Bible, they were the the collaborators with the Romans. They evolved into like rabbinic Judaism. Mm-hmm. And then that evolved into... The dominant strain of... Yeah, like what we have today. Yeah. So the Pharisees had the flexibility to stay around and grow and evolve. And the Essenes with their, you know, just like super strict, super rigid Mm -hmm. way of life, that's just, it can't last. No, can't. So, I mean, it's interesting that a messianic group would bring about its own judgment day (laughs) by being so inflexible as to be unable to, like, handle the change in society. True. But there was no Messiah to save them. Isn't that how it always goes? But the only person coming to save us <laughs> is Mr. Mailbag himself. Mr. Mailbag. He's he's had a long hiatus from the show. We are good employers here. We take the concerns of our employees seriously. What does that mean? Mr. One Mailbag month, went on sabbatical. <laughs> one month off to spend time with his newly born child. Mr. Mailbag Jr. Okay. <laughs> okay. We've heard enough about Mr. Mailbag Jr. We got another letter from our listener, Oded, uh, about our episode on biblical beasts. We mentioned that there's a sea monster in the Bible called the Tanin. Calling him a monster is a bit judgmental. Listen, I'm a Lady Gaga fan. Mm-hmm. It's a compliment when I say it. Uh, in modern Hebrew, it just means crocodile. Tanin. So uh, Oded was reading a Hebrew translation of Moby Dick from the 1950s when modern Hebrew was like newly introduced and they hadn't worked out all the kinks yet. And uh, it called the whale, the titular whale, a tanin. And then I was like, why are they hunting a crocodile? It's a big ass white crocodile. I'm pretty sure it's a whale. (laughs) The classic ocean crocodile. The crocodile of the ocean is what they call the whale. I've heard it called that many times. Like, Hundreds or thousands of times. How fascinating does an early Hebrew, early modern Hebrew translation of Moby Dick sound? That does. It sounds like the most fascinating possible like, thing. That's right up your alley. It's simply up my alley. <laughs> Our listener Nick asked for a blessing for Oreo, a Shih Tzu mix who, quote, loves his toy duck 
and has been nothing but the best of boys since we brought him home. Aww. Here's a blessing directly from the Dad Sea Scrolls. Wow, ancient blessing. That Oreo may seek God with his whole heart and soul and do what is good and right, that he may abstain from all evil and hold fast to all good, that he may practice truth, righteousness, and justice upon earth. Yay, Oreo! We have two cats to curse. One from our friends at the podcast Hell If We Know, which everyone should listen to, and one from listener Thomas, who also recommended a book called And God Said, How Translations Conceal the Bible's Original Meaning. Mm. That also right up my alley. Mm -hmm. Anyway, here's a curse directly from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The apostates were given up to the sword, and so shall it be for Gracie and Bijou. Oh, no. They shall be visited for destruction. By the hand of Belial. Yikes. Belial Satan. Just Sorry, cats and cartoons. <laughs> You're going down. Going down. Biblically speaking. But that'll do it for this week's episode of Sunday School Dropouts. Thank you for hanging out with us and talking about the Bible with us. It's And Bible-adjacent material. It's great. I love it. It's cool. <laughs> She's thrilled. Look at her. She's freaking jumping around. I'm happy as hell. Yeah, happy as a clam. Living in its clam shell. Okay. Well, that's, that's enough about Mr. Mailbag <laughs> Jr. <laughs> if you have a cat or a dog that you would like us to uh, curse or bless respectively. An ocean you, crocodile, th- anything you got. That's right. All you have to do is send us an electronic mail message uh, to contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. That's contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. Do not put in .com. It will take you to a bad, bad place. The place of Belial. The place of Belial. That's where all the Essenes are oh, still wow. to this day. Wow. Huge slam on Essenes out of nowhere. Uh, as always, I thank Nico for sound engineering, music, and editing. You're welcome, my dear. As always, I, and by extension, we, would like to thank Elise. Since <laughs> I am your property as your wife. That's right. Would like to thank Elise Carlton for our logo and art. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at SunSchoolDrop. I am on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill. O'Neill spelled with E-A as in dead or C, but not scrolls. Was that, everyone got that? Yep. Cool. O'Neill spelled like Shaquille does it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Nico Bakulich. N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-H. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just remember to keep those spiders out of your chicken hole. (laughs) Stay biblical, friends. See you on Sunday. Bye.